up Texas National Guard troops uh, to reinforce the crisis at the border with unaccompanied minors that continue to flood over. Uh, everyone's trying to do the best by these children, but they're falling into the judicial system that some say has unintended consequences because of the 2008 law. What is being done specifically in Washington to try to address that so that all sides can feel as if they're reaching a compromise to help these kids that are flooding in from Central America. And, and Washington, I see an embrace of the idea that this is a humanitarian crisis by people who are not politicizing the issue. Uh, what we need to do is have the supplemental that gives us the resources to meet the humanitarian needs, uh, to do the border control, but also to have the judicial peace so that these children have representation and judges to hear their cases. Those who have a right to stay, whether it's uh, refugee status or asylum, whatever, or, uh, should stay and those should go back and that's the message that the, the governments of the three countries now the president is uh, this week the meet is it today the meeting I lost track of his schedule but it is this week the Friday, Friday I think it is he's meeting with the three the president of Honduras Guatemala and El Salvador uh, really clear that while you might have violence and the rest in and these kids are endangered in their country let us help you because that supplemental also has funds to repatriate the children in a safe way back into their countries I, I always reference the Bishop, National Catholic Con, uh, Bishop Conference of Bishops statement in which they said baby Jesus was a refugee from violence let us not turn away from these children and send them back into a burning building that's the bishops and that's, so we have to do this in a way that honors our values but also protects our border and, and uh, does so in a way that the American people understand more clearly. You're engaged in your usual tireless effort. So what is Nancy talking about when she says that uh, Jesus uh, was a refugee from violence and that we should treat, uh, remember that when we're talking about these children. She's talking about Matthew chapter 2, verse 14. And uh, this is, I believe, the last sermon in the series of that verse doesn't mean what you think it means. Um, so uh, when, when, um, when this refugee problem started hitting the news until the Ray Rice issue came up, uh, the news was all awash with stories about the refugees and the influx of unaccompanied children across our southern border. And the plight of refugees is not new. It has been something that's been part of human history forever. Um, the United States has been debating immigration ever since the founding of our country. It seems that once someone gets into our country, they want to close the doors and make sure that no one else gets in. So uh, uh, this most recent publication, uh, public debate has too many folks hijacking certain scriptures to meet their political views, and our text today is one of them. Uh, when we started this series, uh, I didn't think, uh, I don't think that verse means what you think it means. I asked Jason if Matthew 2.14 would be part of that series. So he told me that I should take that verse. And I didn't give it much thought before I said that I would perhaps, uh, I should have given it a little more thought. But here I am in the middle of a controversial situation trying to walk that fine line between political and biblical. 
So uh, uh, have mercy on me. <laughs> uh, we used Nancy Pelosi as our poster t- child for this event uh, because of her close connections and contacts in Maryland. Also, the fact that she was getting the most press as a result of her comments about the Catholic bishops, the Council of Catholic Bishops, stating that Jesus was once a refugee. And, um, and this is the reason why we picked her. But she, by far, is not the only one saying these things. Uh, in fact, there are even many prominent evangelicals who really should know better uh, about uh, this verse. And so we have uh, our, uh, the, both popes here and here being quoted as saying it. Also, the, uh, chair, uh, the Secretary of um, Health and Human Services saying it, and multiple evangelicals saying it. And so it looks like that nothing stands in the way of a good soundbite, uh, not even biblical integrity. So the popular reading is that uh, Jesus was an undocumented child refugee who fled for his life. And I can tell you that uh, in our text, Jesus did flee for his life. Jesus was undocumented, and Jesus was a child. Uh, He did have his parents with him, though, uh, different than some of our situations. So uh, let's go ahead and read the text and see what it has to say about this particular verse. Uh, One could make a case for this understanding. Um, Hold on a second. Let's go ahead and read it first. (laughs) Um, After they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared. So let me set this up for you a little bit. This is after the the, uh, wise men from the east had come and had uh, met with Herod and told him that they were looking for the king of the Jews. And he, they ended up in Bethlehem, and they presented their gifts, and they left. And then Joseph gets this dream. So after they had gone, so the they that had gone are the wise men. Uh, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. And they stayed there until, I tell you, for Herod is going to look for the child to kill him. Then he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and went to Egypt. Uh, He stayed there until Herod died. In this way, uh, that which was spoken by the Lord through the prophets was fulfilled. I called my son out of Egypt. So... This verse was written not to make a statement about refugees and strangers. It was made as a statement to, for us to understand that um, uh, Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus is the Son of God. And so one could make a case. Uh, it does seem in the facts as it's laid out in this story there is uh, that, that Jesus was a refugee, and indeed he was. Uh, he ran away to be safe somewhere else in another country. Um, the problem is, is that's not what this verse means. Uh, the Bible is not silent about the care and treatment of refugees. Uh, for this verse is not the proof text you're looking for. So you don't necessarily, 
if you want to make an argument for how to care for refugees, this is not where you want to be looking. <laughs> so uh, the verse uh, has in the context the very stated purpose, that it was this event in Jesus' life was so that we would know that he was called as the Son of God and that he was the Messiah that was long awaited. And we know this because of the context continues. As you see in verse 17 of the very same chapter, we have the proof text that the Rachel weeping for her children, the slaughtering of the innocents. And we also have the text here, what has been spoken by the prophet was fulfilled, that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. So all these things were put in the scriptures for a specific purpose. And that specific purpose was to let us know who Jesus was, not that he was a refugee. So when we use um, uh, verses to support something for which verses have no application... Regardless of how noble the cause or how true our, our views, maybe and probably we weaken our argument. Why do you think people have such little confidence in politicians? It's because they frequently weaken their credibility with doublespeak and misrepresentations of their positions. So George said, no new taxes. I'm just going to raise your old ones. And that's what you get, that doublespeak all the time. You remember Monica Lewinsky? I did not have sex with that woman. We just have a unique way of kissing. So, we as Christians and Bible believers do not want to compromise our credibility and to... Uh, uh, in seeking to present our arguments. More importantly, we don't want to undermine the credibility of the text itself for its true intentions and applications. Uh, in this case, Matthew is making a case for the Messiah and the, uh, and the authority of Jesus Christ, and this is too important to compromise. So the Bible speaks frequently of, um, has a lot to say on aliens and strangers, and we have plenty of documentation in Scripture that it directly applies to immigration. Um, if you want to make a biblical case for a view on immigration, uh, this is what the Bible has to say about it. So we have Exodus. So you're not supposed to take advantage of refugees. You shall, uh, shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Do not give refugees special privileges. Leviticus 24.22 tells us, You shall have the same rules for the sojourner as for the native. For I am the Lord your God. And God considers how we take care of strangers and the underprivileged is very important. He is going to be judging who and what we are and our characters based upon how we treat others. And 
God said, when I draw near to you for judgment, I will be swift witnesses against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress their hired workers in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So people who mistreat refugees, who mistreat sojourners, who mistreat strangers among us are no different than sorcerers and adulterers and any other kind of sinner. So we shouldn't be taking advantage. So, we do not, there we go. The theme of the biblical view seems to be fairness, justice, equality. Herein lies the problem. I bet if I asked every one of you what is justice, we would get several different answers. And if I asked you how do we achieve justice, I know we would get even more. And so, what is justice? How do you define it? And I'm not going to answer that question today. How can you treat somebody fairly? Sometimes hard to figure out. Let me tell you a story. When I was in elementary school, my mother served lunch one day. And she called my little sister and I in to eat our lunch. And she told us if we finished our sandwich, we could have a cookie. And she put two cookies on a plate and put it in the middle of the kitchen table. Well, I ate my sandwich, but I had uh, other plans. I was planning on a bug hunt that afternoon. And so I said to my mother, Mom, would you mind if I ate my cookie later? And she said, no problem. So around 2 o'clock, I come back into the kitchen, and I'm looking for my cookie. And it's nowhere to be found. I says, Mom, where's my cookie? Isn't it on the plate on the kitchen table? No, there's no cookies on the plate on the kitchen table. And so my mother asked my little sister, did you eat your brother's cookie? And my little sister said to me, yep, sorry about that. And I said, Mom, do we have any other cookies? No, they were the last cookies. I am still looking for that cookie. (laughs) I've yet to find that cookie. So was I treated fair? We don't know. Maybe I was. (laughs) So, when is equality truly equal? Let me tell you another story. The other day, last weekend, Bruce and I and a few of our friends went down to Fort McHenry. And we uh, toured the fort in celebration of the anniversary of uh, the bombardment of Fort McHenry. And afterwards, we all went to Abbey Burger's Bistro, which, Bruce, that's a hard place to find, isn't it? It's stuck in some little alley next to Cross Street Market. You you really got to know where it is. But they have phenomenal burgers, let me tell you. And we sat down, and we had burgers and french fries and we ate and we laughed and we had a grand old time and the bill came and one of the guys said uh, oh the bill's 100 bucks let's split it 20 dollars a piece and i didn't think that was fair because i had a colby burger 
And the Colby burger was 25 bucks all by itself. So I said, it's not fair that somebody should subsidize my meal. In addition to that, I had a side salad, I had, some, I had a drink. So, you know, the, this is not fair that everybody else should have to pay my bill. So I said, that's not equal. You know, that's not fair. We're splitting it evenly, but that's not fair. I eat a lot more food than you guys, or at least more expensive food. And so we, uh, we started debating. Oh, okay, we'll figure out the bill for each person. And there's always that one guy who didn't bring any cash. Right? Uh, so, well, I got my debit card. You know, that screws things up for the waitress. She hates that. Uh, so, you know, we're all debating and, and trying to figure out what is the fair and equal way to distribute this in light of the fact that one guy doesn't have any cash, another guy ate too much food. So, I, look, I'm tired of doing this math. I paid the bill. Was that equal? I don't know. So, you see, equality, fairness, justice is hard to define. And therein lies the tension in how we have this debate about immigration and, and refugee children and all that kind of stuff. It, it's challenging. So it's complex. And the execution of these things is even more complex. And so it, it's very, very, very challenging. And I have spent a lot of time thinking about this for myself. So I thought I would share with you some of the things that have influenced my thinking about how to do this and how even in community we can serve together. And the first thing that has influenced me, well, is this the right slide? Am I on the right place? I am sorry about that. Okay. So service together in community. The key to service together in community is the leading of the Holy Spirit. You need to follow God's leading in these things. But the first and foremost is that we have to be true to the process of what God is calling us to do. And the second key to doing this in community is allowing other people to be just as true to how the Lord is leading them. And so... You know, you may think you know the answers to the immigration problem and that everybody should be doing what you're doing. And that might not be what the Holy Spirit has in mind. Because, like I said, when we ask that question, what is justice and how do we achieve it, we're going to come up with a whole bunch of different answers. And all of these answers are valid as these people have seen the Lord leading them. And we need to be able to allow this to happen harmoniously and in love for one another, and in love for those that we're trying to serve. So one of the first things that influenced my decision-making in this is cura personalis. This is something that I learned when I was actually taking my MBA studies. And I invited two friends from uh, MBA, Mary Christine and Pierre, or classmates of mine at Loyola. And they came to make sure that I learned something from from uh, my MBA, and that all that money wasn't wasted. So this is something I learned from uh, uh, Curis Personalis. And it is a Latin term that is translated care for the entire person. And it suggests individualized attention to the needs of others. 
distinct respect for his or her unique circumstances and concerns, and an appropriate appreciation for his or her particular gifts and insights, and respect for his or her autonomy and ability to be self-determining individuals. And you know, that's not how we do charity here in America. We do charity because we pretend that we know what's best for others and try and tell them what they need to do and how they need to live and what looks like uh, what we think is good for them. And I think that poor or rich, refugee or native, you know what you want, you know what you need, and you have the right to be self-determining. And no time should we ever care about what it does for us more than what it does for them. And so the center of any cura personalis is living the gospel. It is critical that the gospel is essential to this, that loving one another is part of what we do, that God is all about reconciliation, and no one is rich until they're reconciled unto God. And yes, we need to make sure that their physical needs are met, but we also need to remember that their spiritual needs are met. Another big influencer in the way that I've come to decide how I'm going to help the poor and the refugees is a book, When Helping Hurts. Um, I've enjoyed this book a lot. Uh, I've read it several times. Um, I was introduced to it by Louise. Louise said she had read it. She thought it was great. I read it, and I thought it was phenomenal. And I said to my house church, we need to use this book as a study. And we studied it one semester at our house church. And uh, it has influenced my thinking in many ways. So, uh, a, a quote from this book, the goal is not to make the materially poor all over the world into middle to upper class North Americans a group characterized by high rates of divorce, sexual addiction, substance abuse, and mental illness. Nor is the goal to make sure that the materially poor have enough money. Rather, the goal is to restore people to a full expression of humanness, to begin with God's created us all to be people who glorify God by living in right relationship with God with self, with others, and with the rest of creation. And that's from page 74. And so as I've been influenced by what I've read in the Word of God, what I've read in this book, what I've come to learn about Cura Personalis, is that God has uniquely created me to practice something called BAM. Now, BAM is businesses' missions. I don't know if you're familiar with what that means or not, so I'm going to explain it a little bit. It's different than missional business. There's a lot of Christian businessmen who operate their business based on Christian principles. And that's all well and good, but business as missions has a cross-cultural aspect to it, where almost everything is done overseas. 
and not locally. Now, I think I run a missional business here in the United States, but I've also taken the time to uh, travel overseas. And so that's the reason for many of the trips that I take. I don't know if you all know about some of these trips. I usually don't talk much about them. But I went to Ecuador to help rose farmers increase the quality of their product. I've traveled to Shanghai to see if there was an opportunity to open up a branch of scientific insect in China. I've traveled to Ankara to help a not-for-profit organization that works with Iranian refugees. Now, the refugees are pouring out of Iran into Turkey, and Turkey is overwhelmed with this problem. And there was a not-for-profit organization that was overwhelmed with just as many refugees. And a missions organization asked me to go over there and help them with operations so that they could organize their, their selves so that they could service efficiently and effectively more refugees. And I helped with that. I traveled to Istanbul, where in the Middle East, mental illness is a, a stigma on your life. And there was an organization, a not-for-profit organization, that was working with the mentally ill in, in uh, Turkey and other Middle Eastern countries. And they had a terrible problem recruiting people to work with them, even on a temporary part-time basis. And they were trying to set up a network throughout the entire Middle East. I went over to Istanbul to help them organize a, an HR program, a recruiting program, so that they could get more people. I traveled to Lyon, France, where there was an organization there that had a management leadership vacuum. And they, I helped them figure out how to fill that leadership vacuum. They had a community center, a community crisis center in Lyon, France, that was floundering, uh, accomplishing next to nothing. The space was virtually wasted. And I helped them fill that leadership role so that they could get organized. And my favorite trip of all was to Fez, Morocco. And in Fez, Morocco, I, you know, I, of all the places I've been, I had the most fun there. Uh, I was there to help a t-shirt company and an adventure tourism organization. Now, the t-shirt company was an a organization in, in, um, in Fez. They do not allow missionaries. So you have to have another reason to be there. So this, uh, this group of guys who did T-shirt work in Mexico, uh, some, uh, some uh, Hispanic guys from Mexico, they decided that we're going to go over to Fez, Morocco and start sharing the gospel, but we need another reason to be there. And so they said, well, we do T-shirts here. Let's do T-shirts there. And they, they opened a store in the Medina, and they set up a printing operation, and they were printing their shirts, but they were getting these awful shirts. Their supply chain was terrible. I mean, it was the worst thing in the world. And the interesting thing is that they were getting no help from the Moroccan government. Now, you know, you want to start a business in Morocco in lieu of taxes, instead of paying taxes, it's a tax-free country, in lieu of taxes... The king owns 10% of your business, and he wants his 10% off the top, whether you're making a profit or not. And so uh, these guys had this supply chain problem, and they were not able to sell enough t-shirts to pay the taxes, or the 
So we help them solve their uh, uh, supply chain problem by finding another Christian business in Egypt that was making T-shirts out of Egyptian cotton. And the king of Morocco gave us permission to import this. And it was really pretty cool. And it was an, it was an interesting uh, opportunity to sit down with the king's representative. I never did that before. Uh, but really, what was really exciting about going to Fez was the Adventure Tourism Company. They wanted to have help marketing. They wanted to have help figuring out a way to, uh, to get people to come to Morocco for their tours. And I said, you know what? If I'm really going to help you figure out how to market this product, I think I need to, to get a demonstration. So what exactly are you selling? And so we took a camel ride from Fez, Morocco, a whole day out to this oasis in the middle of the Sahara. And we camped overnight out there, and we came back. And I says, you know, this is fun. People would love this. So we came up with an interesting marketing program for this organization. BAM is also an, a pretty exciting way of solving a lot of problems. And in one way, uh, the overseas Christian business venture can provide jobs. It can raise the standard of living for the entire community. It can make health care affordable and accessible. It provides families with uh, uh, enough. Um, it provides for families, and it pr promotes self-worth. And it makes disciples of Jesus Christ, grows churches. It helps stop human trafficking and other social injustices. And it helps make education affordable and accessible to people. And it is one of the reasons why people from Honduras and uh, some of the other countries where these children are coming from, it's one of the reasons why they're leaving is because they can't have those things there. So one of the solutions that I offer, the one of the solutions that I try to do is let's make it Honduras a better place to live. So you don't need to travel in order to be prosperous. And this is just some of the things that I've done. These are just some of the things that I've uh, tried, ways that I've tried to express my care for the poor. There's other ways, and every one of those ways are just as valid. You don't have to do it. BAM is not the only answer. In fact, BAM is a small part of the answer. But everybody needs to... Uh, uh, take the time to think about why, how is the Lord leading you. We as Christians have a rich and powerful mandate to care for others. To be fair and kind to refugees, to show the love of Christ through the gospel. With all the ways with all of the ways um, I'm sorry um, right with all of the ways God has led his followers to express love, we do, do not need Matthew 2.14 to have a convincing argument. My challenge to you is to think about how God may be leading you to serve others with first doing no harm and respecting that person and then come up with, for yourself 
Come up for yourself a come up with a five-minute elevator speech. Does anybody, everybody familiar with this five-minute elevator speech concept? It's a business concept. Being a businessman, I tend to flow that kind of thinking into my life. But if you're ever in an elevator with the big boss at your company and you have something you want to pitch to him, you need to have a five-minute presentation that lasts as long as an elevator ride that would catch his attention and make him get, grant you an appointment to talk about this. And I want you to have a five-minute elevator speech explaining what features and benefits there are for your approach to helping the poor. And then, if you really want to be challenged by this, write it down and email it to me. I think this would be a phenomenal way for us to start a discussion about how we could best do this as a community and as individuals. And I think it would be a phenomenal way for us to really start thinking about seriously divorcing ourselves from the politics of caring for refugees and start caring about the souls of the refugees. Let us pray. Gracious Lord and Heavenly Father, I thank you for your love for us, and your love for others. I ask, Lord, that you would uh, fill us with your Holy Spirit and that you would lead us in how we may serve. In Jesus' name.